Ariana Preston found her calling as a cop. She fought to be a good person. She fought to do things right. She fought to help this community. The recent ISU grad was shot to death while coming home from work. There are still many questions about what happened. We'll get to those just ahead on WGLT Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. Also on today's show, a citizens group in McLean County gets a rare public look into how the county jail is run. We also try to um, look for areas of improvement that we could suggest to the jail. And it just wouldn't be a school day in normal without a smile and a helping hand from 93-year-old Gail Thomas. I feel like he's a local legend in some ways. Brings a smile to us all. Those stories follow a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Bill McKay. Folks that had never had a, a set of hearing aids were always concerned. All of a sudden, oh, you've got, well, yes, I, I wear them too. And, and it's really is helpful. And these things are really kind of nice. Bill's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. We begin today with the latest on the killing of a police officer, a recent Illinois State University alum. WGLT's Eric Stock reports there are still many questions surrounding her death. Ariana Preston was a 2020 graduate of ISU. Preston was killed around 1.30 Saturday morning near her Southside Chicago home during an apparent robbery shortly after getting off work. The Chicago Sun-Times reports five people are in custody in connection with the killing. As of Tuesday afternoon, no charges have been filed. Preston's colleagues remember her as a thoughtful and driven public servant. Sergeant Vivian Williams knew the young officer. She was a fighter. She, she fought to be a good person. She fought to do things right. She fought to help this community. Great kid. Great police officer. Slayed in the, uh, sorry. Gunned down on the streets of Chicago. Officer Deshaun Lee also worked alongside Preston. Going into these, you know, high-tension um, calls that we go to, you know, you never know what you expect. And um, just to have somebody that was positive and, you know, kept a smile on the face. It just, it made the day go by easier. It took police more than 30 minutes to find Preston after she had been shot. According to Chicago Public Media, a shot spotter alert quickly picked up the barrage of gunfire that struck Officer Preston, but it took another alert from the officer's Apple Watch to send a traffic cop to the scene. Police have not explained the reason for the delayed response. Preston was 24 and was scheduled to get her master's in criminology at Loyola University this Saturday. With reporting from Illinois Public Radio, I'm Eric Stock. This is Sound Ideas on WGLT. I'm John Norton. It's been four years since the opening of McLean County's $43 million jail expansion. That was aimed at dealing with overcrowding and the expanding mental health needs of inmates. Now staff shortages are causing new problems at the jail. The sheriff recently had to send dozens of inmates to another county jail as a stopgap until more correction officers can be hired. Watching this unfold is the Jail Review Committee, which was created four decades ago as a standalone group of 
volunteers focused on education. In this interview with WGLT's Ryan Denham, Jail Review Committee Chair Jesse Kreinert says they play an important role. And a lot of times in corrections, it's a very closed system. And so people who aren't working in the system don't really have a lot of information about what goes on inside. And so the goal was to find members of community organizations um, that could be a part of this new organization, Jail Review, and really learn about the jail and how it works and then take that information back to their respective communities and back to their respective organizations to serve an educational function. Um, We also try to um, look for areas of improvement that we could suggest to the jail um, and also just look for areas uh, in the community that might be able to link to the jail, to work to the jail, to provide services that maybe weren't thought about before. So how do you find areas of improvement or areas of concern? Sure, there's a couple different ways. Um, One of the biggest things that we do is every few years we try to do a survey of inmates in the facility. And through that survey, we're able to identify areas um, maybe that people hadn't thought about before that might be problematic. Um, In the past, and this is far in the past, one of the areas that we found um, actually had to do with the library, that the inmates weren't very happy with a lot of the old books that were in the library at that time. They were often kind of the Reader's Digest condensed versions or romance novels, and they were looking for more self-help and, uh, you know, books that would be maybe more modern. And so we spent some time then um, working with the community and working with the jail to update that library. And now it's much better than it was before. And so when we do surveys now, we don't see the same issues we saw before in relation to library and books and services. Does the jail review committee have any any areas of concern at the moment or areas where you're, you're paying particular attention? Um, certainly, we're always paying attention to um, issues of housing and crowding and how that works. Um, we've been really lucky to have a strong working relationship with the jail, and so we're able to um, talk with members of the jail staff and members who work in the jail to um, you know, find out how things are going in the jail at that time. And so we certainly always ask questions on, on how the jail is working, especially with uh, the new areas of the jail that are now available. And so certainly we're monitoring all, all of those issues in relation to that. Um, One of our long-term areas that we always focus on is re-entry. And so we try to work with community agencies um, and really pair them with the jail to see what can be done for some of those re-entry gaps that exist in our community. Do I have it right, though, that there's no formal enforcement or no formal oversight role for for the Jail Review Committee? Correct. Not at all. We're a standalone body that really serves an educational purpose. And and as I said, we've been very lucky to have a strong relationship with the jail. And so we've been able to have a jail liaison attend our meetings to answer any questions we might have. And we've been really lucky to be able to talk with different members of the jail, including the sheriff, um, you know, when we have questions. Well, we have a new sheriff now. Uh, Sheriff Matt Lane started about uh, four or five months ago. Go. Has, has the Jail Review Committee built a relationship with him yet? We have had contact with the new sheriff, and he'll actually be attending our upcoming meeting uh, so that we can talk more about um, what our role will be. He seems very um, excited to have us on board and to be able to work with us in the future, and so we're looking forward to a, um, a continued strong relationship with the, with the jail staff and sheriff. Well, the new sheriff, uh, Matt Lane, uh, has has been pretty vocal about how staff shortages have been a problem uh, for him as, as he's taken over. Um, recently forced him to move 50 to 60 inmates uh, to another county's jail just because of these staffing issues. Is that something the jail review committee is is monitoring? Is there a role for you there on, on that issue? 
It's certainly something that we monitor and we ask questions about and try to look at maybe why that's occurring. But I think importantly, that's really just reflective of a nationwide shortage of correctional workers. So it's really not unique to McLean County in any way. And so we're, we're kind of in the same boat as, as everyone is across the country uh, currently right now in relation to people working in the field of corrections. And it really hits jails even harder than it does uh, state correctional facilities. Now, when inmates are being housed in a different county physically, you know, in this case, maybe 50, 60 minute drive away. What sort of impact does that have on, you know, families of inmates and lawyers of inmates, things like that? Absolutely. It has impacts on everyone. I mean, family will be uh, less likely to certainly visit in person. Luckily, a lot of the facilities now have, um, you know, visitation online. And so you're still able to maintain those ties, uh, you know, similarly to how you might maintain it here in town. But it certainly adds extra stress and strain. And just even just the the unknowing, you know, of where am I going to be and how long am I going to be there. Um, But certainly the costs are one of the bigger factors, too. Um, Anytime they have a court date, they're going to have to, you know, come back here for that court date. And so that's extra money that we're paying for that to occur. Uh, Last week, uh, we reported that that some mentally ill inmates who require 24-hour supervision were uh, being held in the jail's booking area because, again, a shortage of correctional officers at the jail. That's not the right spot for them. It's one of the reasons why the the county built this this $39 million uh, jail expansion. Um, What was the jail review committee's reaction or thinking on that news, that development? I mean, it's certainly unfortunate that we don't have the staff to staff the newer areas that were built to really help with the mental health crisis that we deal with in corrections. Um, and although booking is not the ideal place, the the reason inmates are kept in booking is because they can be watched uh, at all times. And so when you're dealing with someone with severe mental illness, you want to make sure that you are able to monitor them and see what's going on and maintain their mental health as much as you can. And so we certainly understand the reason for moving them back to booking, even though it's very unfortunate, and hopefully that will be resolved once we can get more staff to staff the new areas that were built specifically to address some of those issues. That's Jail Review Committee Chair Jesse Kreinert, who is also a professor of criminal justice sciences at ISU. She spoke with WGLT's Ryan Denham. Tomorrow on Sound Ideas, the next in WGLT's Welcome Home series. Where do you go if you want to be green and you are new to Bloomington Normal? Listen tomorrow. Well, over the next few weeks, you may find yourself going to a lot of graduation parties and weddings. And if you luck out, you might be able to bite into a dessert made by Maria Alvarez. She is one of Bloomington Normal's most successful professional cake makers. WGLT's Ryan Denham recently visited with Alvarez. He learned about her journey from Mexico to the U.S. as a teenager and why hard work can be so delicious. Every special occasion is, by definition, special. But for Maria Alvarez, quinceañeras are different. She moved to Bloomington Normal at age 14, hopeful that she'd get to return home to Mexico the next year for her quinceañera. That's a birthday party for a 15-year-old marking a girl's passage from childhood to adulthood. But she never did. A few decades later, Alvarez is now a well-known Bloomington Normal cake maker. She became popular in part by making delicious cakes for Bloomington Normal's many Hispanic families for quinceañeras. And for those, she goes all out. So I didn't have a, I didn't have a 15th birthday uh, quinceañera. I didn't, have, I didn't have one. So now that I, I'm a decorator, too, um, when I have an event, I try to do like it was my 15th birthday. Or if I do a wedding, if I do the cake, or if I decorate a wedding, I do it if it's my own. 
After running Maria's Cakes business for about seven years, Alvarez is now adding new layers. She recently took over a cookies by design business and launched her own events business, meaning that she's running three affiliated businesses with six employees out of a storefront at 1520 East College in Normal. Right now, I basically live here. <laughs> basically. Um, I'm, I'm here all the time. I'm here after hours trying to work. Alvarez is no stranger to hustle. She started working at age eight to help her very poor family, including five siblings. She worked for a woman who made cakes, spying on her to begin learning the craft. After moving to the U.S. as a teenager, Alvarez would get asked by family and friends to make them cakes. I was become very popular, especially in the Spanish community. They were asking me, okay, can you do this uh, 15th birthday cake? I started with the 15th birthday. And then as soon as I make one, then more, 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 more people asking me. It became to the point that I was so popular that I needed to get a location, put everything together. Alvarez says it takes about three days to make a cake for a big event like a quinceanera. Her cakes are seven to eight inches tall, and that stacks up if she does, say, a five-layer cake that needs to be transported in pieces. So I had to ask, what's the tallest cake that you've ever made? I think yeah, the tallest cake I ever made is probably, oh, but I had to use a ladder to put it together. <laughs> Alvarez likes the challenge of designing and making a cake when a customer comes in with a few dozen photos as inspiration. What's more common, though, is for a customer to come in and tell Alvarez that they like her work, they trust her, and they want her to come up with something on her own. But that is a little more pressure. I like that, but in the meantime, it's like, oh my God, I have to do it better because it's not going to be like a picture that they give it to me and I got to do it. I had to put more into it. It's kind of good and bad. The most expensive cake she's ever made cost $3,000. Wedding cakes typically start about $350. With that price, you're getting a lifetime of cake-making experience. So if you've watched a lot of reality TV cooking shows where fondant icing, like that stiff clay, is prominently featured, Alvarez can tell you why she can make a cake without fondant that's just as cute but cheaper and tastier. I do the traditional cake, like the buttercream, stuff like that. But people now like more of, like I have flavored with a piña colada cake. So that's something that you usually don't see in a way. Pecan cake, um, a strawberry cake, you know, with fresh fruit inside, mango cake. I think that's what make, makes uh, me different than everybody else. Alvarez is an artist, and her latest business ventures give her the chance to control more of the canvas. She recently launched Events by Design and took over Cookies by Design in October, meaning she can now offer event packages that include themed decorations, a cake, or a sweets table, with things like cake pops, Rice Krispies, macaroons, the works. She'll even cut the cake for you. They're tall, 7 to 8 inches tall, so it's not, it's not very easy for somebody to to cut those kind of cakes. That's the kind of thing you want to leave to a professional. I'm Ryan Denham. You can find more stories about the Bloomington Normal Business Community on our Business and Economy page anytime at WGLT.org. I'm John Norton. This is Sound Ideas. Every so often on WGLT, you get to hear the story of an unsung community servant who's making Bloomington Normal a better place to be. We call it More of That, Please. 
As the school year winds down, we'd like to shine a light on Gail Thomas. Gail is a school crossing guard in his 90s who's staying young at heart. WGLT correspondent Michelle Steinbacher has his story. The sounds of Glenn's school days end surround Felipe Bessa and his daughter Lua. They're heading east on Glen Avenue in Normal. The Bessas, who live nearby, pass school kids waiting for buses and cars as drivers inch along the narrow neighborhood street. But they'll soon reach Fell Avenue, where crossing guard Gail Thomas always greets them with his bright smile. So, yeah, we see him every day. He's super friendly, very helpful, rain or shine or blizzard. Most amazing is how cheerful he is every day. You know, you ask him how he's doing, he says, chipper as ever. It's been five years since Thomas has started at his post at Fell and Glen. Back in 2018, the Normal Police Department had decided to contract its school crossing guard program to California-based all-city management services. Roger Thomas lives in Normal, as does his father, Gail. Roger saw the news and suggested his father apply. I want to keep active after I've retired and also do something to kind of help the community. People say Thomas puts 110% into the few hours he works each weekday morning and afternoon. Glenn grandparent Dave Beer drives his first-grade granddaughter Nevia Arms to and from school. He's seen firsthand Thomas's dedication. The guy just goes way above the norm. You know, he's cleared off the sidewalks for kids. Um, he's always out there. I don't think I've ever seen him miss a day. And here's Glen Elementary Principal Scott Vogel. During the uh, rainy season, he's out holding an umbrella waiting for kids to come. If it is in the snowy season, he's out there with a snow shovel clearing the way. And if it is just leaf season and there's leaves blowing all over, he's got his little leaf blower out there. That work ethic and a cheery disposition have won many hearts over. Glenn parent Mike Lukey says Thomas makes every day brighter. Amazing. I mean, you know, I I feel like he's a local legend in some ways. Brings a smile to us all. Thomas says that joy is reciprocal. He calls the grade schoolers crossing his path little sunbeams. Lukey's boys, third grader Luke and first grader Oliver, also are big fans of Thomas. Luke says he thinks it's cool how the crossing guard's job is helping kids. He also is quick to point out he loves Thomas's red hatchback parked each morning along Fell. Oliver thinks a crossing guard as happy as Thomas deserves a really good paycheck. If Oliver were the boss... I'd pay him a thousand of dollars... Well, maybe that won't happen, but Thomas says families have adopted him in a way. Sometimes when the weather's bitter cold, they'll bring him hot coffee, and on warmer days, an orange juice. Vogel says some families even bring the crossing guard Christmas gift cards. The principal says Thomas is part of the Glenn family, even if he doesn't officially work for Unit 5 School District. They come up, he interacts with them, he talks with them, he gets to know their names. He gets to know the younger siblings that eventually become Glenn Eagles. Thomas recalls one young toddler riding a scooter alongside her older brothers and sisters each weekday. Now, in his fifth year as a crossing guard, Thomas says he's watched her grow up. She might be in second or third grade now, he says. Thomas says his age has come up from time to time. He doesn't mind, though. It kind of gives him a chuckle. One parent said, well, I'm 41 years old. And I said, well, I have a granddaughter that age. And, and they don't realize that the parents are the age of some of my grandchildren. Principal Vogel says having an older crossing guard definitely is a talking point at first. Parents have come up to me and said, do you know that Gail Thomas is 93 years old? And the first time kind of caught me off guard. But ever since then, it's like, man, that guy just has a heart to serve. Thomas arrives weekdays about an hour before the school bell rings. He sets up on the corner and gets out of his car a shovel, a snowblower, or whatever is needed. Working outside comes naturally. 
So does managing a situation. That's because Thomas worked for more than half a century in construction management. There's a little serendipity at play considering his late-in-life turn at school crossing guard. That's because much of Thomas's career focused on the brick and mortar of schools. When I came to town in 1959, I started out with Chittick's Junior High, and then uh, I went on to Normal Community West High School and then the new Normal Community High School, plus some other schools. One reason why it's interesting is because I went an extra year to college to get my teaching certificate, and instead of teaching schools, I wound up building them. His fruitful career in central Illinois began with J.L. Rohn, and his work on academic buildings stretched into higher education. I was in construction management for many years. I retired when I was 86, but on the university campus here, I was involved in the building of, I think, about nine or ten structures here, starting out with Horton Field House and then uh, University High School. And then I ended up representing ISU in the building of the arena, which is now the CEFCU arena, and also ISU Science Lab building. He also helped with the track at Illinois Wesleyan University. The crossing guards that serve on Bloomington and Normal Streets fall under the purview of the city police departments. For several years, both NPD and BPD have contracted the service out with all city management services. The assistant regional manager for that company, Jennifer Metcalf, says the hard work of Thomas hasn't gone unnoticed. This time last year, the company named him Bloomington Normal Crossing Guard of the Year. It's an honor he's humble about, but the award didn't surprise anyone familiar with Thomas's work, including the staff and parents of Glenn. Principal Vogel says, with Thomas, age really is just a number. He says being a community servant is what Thomas is choosing to do in his retirement, and he's made an impression. He does make an impact in our learning environment whether he knows it or not. His heart is so incredibly focused and invested in our kids and our families. People are going to remember Gail Thomas for years, just like he was their classroom teacher. For this summer, the nonagenarian plans to stay active, getting up early as usual. The school crossing guard likes spending time with his four-generation family. He has three sons, eight grandchildren, and 15 great-grandchildren. Son Charles's family lives in Indiana. Bruce's is in Wisconsin, and Roger's here in Normal. So he might be doing some traveling. Thomas says his love of the outdoors means he'll also continue his daily bike rides on the Constitution Trail, and he'll spend lots of time palling around with his pup, Lambeau. I'm Michelle Steinbacher. Thomas says he's enjoying the kids' excitement about the nearing of summer, but his favorite time to be on his fell in Glen Corner is fall. He says back-to-school season brings more new faces. Plus, there are three giant maples that he says just wow him when their leaves turn gold. WGLT wants to hear your suggestions for heartwarming stories of good stuff happening in our community. Contact us at our website, through our social media pages, or by emailing us at news at WGLT.org. And that's Sound Ideas today. WGLT's news magazine is made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm John Norton. Story help today from WGLT's Eric Stock, Ryan Denham, and Michelle Steinbacher. The show is produced by Samantha Hill. This is 891 WGLT and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network.